Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Oh, McDevitt here with my podcasting brothers, Kieran Murphy and Ken Erdy. Hi, Hi brothers. Hello, how are you doing, Kieran? podcasting. Yeah, I, yeah. In that strict sense, I suppose we are brothers. Katie though. Taylor's on a march towards five world championships in a row. She was involved in a bit of a brawl with Finland's Mira Potkonen uh, today, and next up tomorrow morning is our old pal Sofia Ochigava. Mm. Remember, of course, she beat Katie in the gold medal fight at the London Olympics. If there's one adage this Russian on fighter on. lives by... Hold on a second. Katie Taylor beat her. Who Katie beat? Is that what I said, no? No, you said that she beat Katie. Oh. I mean, if well, you ask Sofia, that's probably... That's exactly it. Her yeah. adage, Murph, is show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. Mm. I mean, she yeah. felt she'd won the fight and saw no reason to be gracious in victory. But hey, it's probably quite annoying to lose a closely fought Olympic final to your great rival. And sport can't be all about being stoic in the face of defeat. No, sometimes sport is about standing there with foldy arms and pouty face <laughs> uh, complaining about the stitch-up. Yeah. Uh, that that's just seen that you you lose. I mean, out. yeah, it, it's one thing to you know have a bit of a face on you, you know, after you've been beat, you know, look really disappointed, but also look a little angry. But then you know she kind of doubled down on it by coming out and saying all of those things as well that you know the golden girl couldn't lose and all the rest of that. Mm, yeah. um, one of the worst losers in sport. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> so. Anyone anyone else on that list? Bad losers. Uh, Arsene Wenger. I'd say Arsene Wenger is not a very good loser. No, he's, he's no you're just saying that because he doesn't go into his handshake nonsense, and then if he doesn't shake someone's hand, it's seen as the greatest crime ever. Oh no, it's not even no, and the, the bottle of wine. You're buying into the Sam Allardyce no, worldview here, Murphy. Pizza but, gate. Isn't, but isn't it the same thing though? Uh, but he didn't. No, pizza gate. He didn't throw the pizza. I was. He condoned it though. It's not just <laughs> English football. I mean, is handshaking not seen as a big thing in American sports? Nah, as well? yeah, no. I listen. It if is. somebody refused to shake my hand, I probably wouldn't be too happy about it myself. But it's part of this overall picture of Arsene Wenger as a guy who doesn't he's a really, bad loser he doesn't really he just doesn't he just loses different is he a worse loser than I think Ferguson's actually probably even worse yeah I think so even though he'll have a glass of wine which is sure typical Germans that was, uh, <laughs> that was one of Ferguson's better responses to losing um, I do remember the day that United have lost the league he's been quite gracious yeah. I remember when City won the no, league I think with, he with the, where I, yeah. well he's still a really bad loser though Bill Belichick Another 
not very good loser. Uh, but then again, he looks cross all the time. You know, well, you what, just did describe... Bill, what did Bill Mijic do? Well, <laughs> uh, the, when the Giants beat them in the Super Bowl after the Patriots had gone 16-0 in the regular season and then won all of their playoff games, and they were going for the perfect season, which has only been done by one other team, yeah. uh, a really terrible, like, unbelievably bad New York Giants team beat them in the <laughs> Super Bowl. And, you know, he just... He may have mentioned that in passing, is basically what I'm trying to say. The greatest team ever gets beaten by one of the worst Super Bowl winning teams ever. You know, in a situation... He like said that, that after the game. No, no, but I mean, you know, the, it, the implication was quite... You're not convincing us, Murphy. You can't go by implications. I just go by what people say. And do you know who I feel is the best loser in sport? Uh, this is a serious point. Jimmy Barry Murphy. Yeah. Well, he's unbelievable. The guy wins, the guy loses. It's the same. He's just this unbelievably classy, gracious guy. Even after the All-Ireland Final, when they should have beaten, well, they, Claire were a better team, but they almost nicked it. Claire got the, the point to equalise right at the end. And he's just, well, you know, you, you go again. And it's not, it's not a case of just dead batting. He genuinely seems to be able... Never heard him give out about a referee. Never heard him do yeah. anything along those lines. Yeah, it's no, just, just my loving with Jimmy Barry Murphy continues again. No, no, I think, I think in fairness, you've, you've probably raised a pretty good point there. Happens the odd time, so... Yeah, better acknowledge it when it does. <laughs> we'll check in with Aaron O'Neill in South Korea where Katie's fighting. And even bigger news in all of this, if there could be bigger news, Tiger Woods has said something interesting in public for the first time since, well, since this. I am also aware of the pain my behavior has caused to those of you in this room. I have let you down. And I have let down my fans. For many of you, especially my friends. My behavior has been a personal disappointment. That was Tiger's <laughs> heartfelt and sincere apology <laughs> in 2010. Um, I'm going to go and watch that God. press conference again. It was one of the greatest media performances I've ever seen. Oh God, that is just so awful. It's like the, it's the worst public speaking I've ever heard. I mean, I've been at a few weddings. I've heard a few best man speeches, <laughs> a few father speeches. of the bride speeches. That's a lot worse than the worst I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah. Oh, he really would have been better off just leaving that. Yeah, just leave the whole frago behind, I think, at that stage. And just, 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 ah, but anyway, listen, it's there. It's in the canon of great media performances. Before that, he hadn't really revealed anything to the public since about 1996. But this week, Tiger has been sparked into action by an article by Dan Jenkins in Golf Digest magazine. This was a parody interview. You might have read it. If you haven't, we'll tweet something. Uh, we'll tweet a link to both this and Tiger's response. Jenkins essentially right, invents this fictitious interview with Tiger, uh, not pretending that he's interviewed Tiger, but uh, as in not purporting to have interviewed him, but setting up a, an obvious fake interview during which he lays down some serious criticisms and Tiger's written a detailed response in which he says that Jenkins faked an interview which fails as parody and is really more like a grudge fueled piece of character assassination. Ken, give us a flavour of what Jenkins had to write. It's just, like, I totally agree with Tiger Woods. Um, this You do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jenkins obviously doesn't like Tiger Woods. Fair enough. A lot of people don't. Maybe there's good reasons for that. But he essentially just creates this um, fake dialogue. You know, well, he's interviewing Tiger. You know, it's a parody interview or whatever. And the Tiger Woods character says all kinds of egotistical uh, and stupid things. Uh, talks about how he likes to fire people because, uh, you know, gives him something to do and he's not shaping his shots. Um, talks about his big house. You've got a house the size of Luxembourg. Um, you know, what are you doing there? Oh, you know, I play video games. When I'm not firing people. Yeah, I put on the carpets. You know, sometimes a closet needs colour coordinating. So he paints a picture of Tiger as having this empty, vacuous life. Um, you know, at one point he says, uh, 
after you'd won uh, three US Ams, your father said you were going to have a greater impact on the world than Gandhi. I laughed out loud. What was your reaction, says Dan Jenkins. Fictitious Tiger Woods replies, I looked for Gandhi, G-A-N-D-Y, this is spelt in the record book, and I couldn't find him. Uh, but I didn't go, go as far back as Middlecoff, Demeray, and those guys who are oh, old golfers. Old golfers. Um, so, so Tiger Woods is, is, is an ignorant moron who's never heard of Gandhi. He thinks uh, Gandhi, you know, one of the most famous figures of the 20th century, is a, uh, is a golfer. I guess that's a joke. Tiger Woods is unbelievably ignorant and stupid. Fictitious Tiger is what we're fictitious, the, the tiger fictitious Tiger Woods is, article, is yeah. unbelievably ignorant and stupid. He's so thick that he wouldn't have heard of Gandhi. He thinks Gandhi's a golfer. That's how dumb he is. Would the article have been uh, more acceptable to you if it was if it was even remotely funny? Yeah, uh, it might have been. I mean, the other the other strand, which kind of, kinda, it, but I mean that you know that's. This is—it's just leaden. Yeah, you know, the whole thing—the whole thing is just not very funny at all. It's just and a I'm reiteration putting, of every. It's, I'm, I'm more asking the problem you have with it. It appears to be more than just that it's not funny, though. Yeah, well, I think I think it's bad. I mean, you'd want it would want to be seriously funny to 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 he's get away using, with. He's using a, a literary device to just lay down a load of personal attacks on Tiger Woods. I, I, I think the point you raise is interesting, Omar. If Diane, Diane K. Shah, this is a piece that we've referenced before, an American writer wrote uh, a similar kind of idea. It was a parody interview, and it's how, you're, how you should do these pieces if you're going to do it. It's called, Oh No, Not Another Boring Interview with Steve Carlton, right? Yeah. So she uses this guy, Steve Carlton, as the centerpiece of the point. And she, she makes up a scenario where this guy's really rude, obnoxious to the media, treats him like dirt, doesn't do interviews. So she sets up this scenario where he asks her, begs her to interview him. She, he, she inverts the dynamic yeah. between the journalist and sportsman. He's begging her. He's for, begging her and she's giving her all these, she's giving all the reasons that she can't do it. And essentially what she's doing there is using one guy as the centerpiece, but actually taking the piss out of sports people generally and the relationship between the media and the sport, yeah. which is really interesting, really broad, whereas this, it's great. this, this I mean, Dan that's, Jenkins that's, thing is is, is... is idiotic because, I mean, the character that she invented clearly had nothing, was a fictitious character, clearly had nothing to do with the actual... Whereas this fictitious Tiger Woods actually sounds... You know, in, in you know, in like terms the of character, the caricature. That he's talking about, about the, the real events of Tiger Woods's life. You know, he keeps mentioning oh, the Escalade and you know, uh, the, you know, Tiger Woods's private life. Uh, you know, he keeps talking about his golf record. It is, it's Tiger Woods. You know, from these things, but he also puts thoughts or, or statements into Tiger Woods's mouth. The other thing that he does is he keeps congratulating himself on how brilliant he is. Um, he, you know, he he's got lines like you know. Uh, when he's kind of taunting fictitious Tiger Woods about not doing very well in golf anymore, just like the real Tiger Woods. Um, like I tweeted, take away the two triples, the three doubles, and the nine bogeys, and you'd have been right there. Like I tweeted. Like anyone cares that you tweeted. I mean, how many followers does this guy even have on Twitter? I, I don't know. I'd never heard of him. But, you know, he... Uh, he, he, he is a very well-known... Like he's a very, he's a, quite an old guy at this stage, but he was a, has been a top sort of American... Writer, yes, it's not like a, a, a sort of nobody writer writing about. Like I, like I tweeted. He also, he also uh, puts in. I wrote only two things can stop him from breaking Jack's record. Jack, you know, mm. uh, injury or a bad marriage. And fictitious Tiger says, "You wrote that," and he says, "In a moment of brilliance, yes." <laughs> and Tiger <laughs> says, "You nailed it." Yeah. So you know, I just he, laughed at that bit. So maybe he said, "Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm amazing. I'm brilliant. I'm so prescient that I was able to predict that uh, only, uh, you know, a disaster in his personal life or um, physical collapse can prevent Tiger Woods from doing it." You know, what a brilliant piece of insight that is. 
Mm. You know? The only major um, personal or physical crises can prevent this man from attaining his full, almost limitless potential. Genius. Well, listen, Dave I'm Han- amazed I haven't Life, heard of this guy before. Cool. Yeah. Dave Hannigan, I know, feels a little differently about this. Uh, very differently, in fact. I think his, his point is that Tiger needs to lighten up a little bit and accept these kind of things. So we'll chat to Dave about that later on. The Australian rugby team is in town, which means the Aussie journalists are in town. And I'm delighted to welcome Chris Dutton of the Canberra Times into studio. Chris, good to have you in. Thank you very much for having me. I'm wondering, first of all, we're putting a lot of pressure on ourselves in this game this weekend. Certainly the supporters are putting pressure on the team because we've got an awful habit of winning against Mm -hmm. a big side and then losing the next one. And it's pretty rare we put them back to back. So we really want to beat Australia having beaten South Africa. How much pressure is there on on the Australia team? Well, there's plenty of pressure in terms of the, the public perception back home because Australian rugby over the past years kind of struggled a little bit with publicity and, and fans going away from the game. With It's quite a competitive sporting market back home um, with rugby league, um, your Australian rules football, and, and soccer is really starting to come through as well. So if the Wallabies aren't winning, the crowds don't come and the ARU loses money, which is massive for the team. They need to be winning games now to be making money in the future. They have got a new coach who we're very familiar mm, with now, yes. uh, Michael Checker. Uh, what sort of impact has he had so far? Is it anything noticeable? Yeah, it's absolutely massive impact. Really? But Already? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just in the way that they train, like uh, talking to team medical staff and things when you're watching training and they say this is a completely different atmosphere um, in terms of the way guys are really enjoying it and I'm sure... Most people in Dublin already know that Michael Checker doesn't hold back. Like yeah. He calls it how he sees it, and he will rip into the players numerous times at training. He's like pulled the whole group in and absolutely blasted them if they're not um, up to standard or if they're not doing something that he thinks they should be doing. And, and one of the other things that I've really noticed is he's really hands-on too. A couple times last week in Paris, he... Um, they were practicing scrums, but they were one forward short. So he actually packed down at number eight. Really? In a live scrum, <laughs> so a full live scrum battle. So he's hands-on and, and having a real crack. Yeah. And I think that's what's making the players want to play for him. So they see how passionate he is and, and they want to play for him and win. That's really interesting because when he first mm. came to Lancer, he was just cutting his teeth as a coach and he was yes. definitely hands-on then and probably a bit of a control freak. But the big thing that he, that he did at that stage was to bring a structure to the whole thing, bring a lot more professionalism to the whole mm-hmm. thing. Uh, and it seems like he's evolved, I'm sure, a lot as a coach since then. Of course, he's done brilliantly in club rugby in Australia. But that ethos still seems to be there then, that he's he's about getting a structure together and being as hard on people as possible to, to make it happen. Yeah, and and don't be fooled, he's still definitely a control freak. He still loves to have his hands on every single element of the game. He loves talking to the players being involved in their lives. Um, interesting talking to a few of uh, the former Leinster players this week, just catching up with them to see what their opinion of him was. And, and they said he came in and he cleaned out the dead wood at Leinster. Um, he did things his way and he'd go bananas if um, you did something wrong. And and a few times he's had altercations with uh, referees and things like that, I think. We remember one yeah. or two of them, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of touch judges didn't come out of them too well. Yeah. TV interviewers as well, yeah. to be fair. Uh, and, I mean, that's still the case. Like he, uh, A couple of people said he's kind of pulled that passion back a little Mellow bit. But a bit. Um, I don't know if you guys over here know, but a game in Canberra earlier this year, he smashed the window in the coach's box um, because he was frustrated that his team lost. And so walking out of it, he punched it and... 
it kind of shattered. Um, and then in South Africa, he, he got in a bit of an altercation with one of the sideline officials. So nothing's changed <laughs> in that respect. But he is more technically advanced. He's, he's more, got a better game plan. He's got good people around him as well. So that point you, you raise about the marketing of the game, mm. how important it is in a very saturated market, so many big sports in Australia. How does that feed into how the coach has to coach the team? Does, does Czech have to be aware that we have to be entertaining here as well because that's the way we would, what we would associate with Australian rugby? Definitely. And that's one thing he said when he came into the uh, Waratahs job in Sydney there. He, Sydney's a, a tough market. There's about six rugby league teams. There's two AFL teams. There's a, two A-league soccer teams. Um, and if you're not playing entertaining rugby in Australia, people don't come. And the Waratahs struggled for a long time to get crowds. They played like they, people didn't like the ping pong sort of aspect of kicking. So what Checker did was come in and he played attacking rugby, and it didn't work the first year. They they didn't make the finals, but it paid off the second year. That's what he's trying to bring bring into um, the Wallabies as well. In fairness, Ewan McKenzie, the former coach, probably started that um, with an attacking style. And one of the reasons why the ARU opted for Michael Checker over Jake White, who's a World Cup winning coach, was because Jake's more of a tactical, defensive sort of coach and Czech's uh, an up-tempo, high-paced, attacking guy. And that's what Australian rugby needs. Yeah, but that just seems amazing to me, you know, that... I understand it in club rugby where mm. you know it's it's you know you understand that clubs in whatever sport be it soccer be it Aussie rules be it whatever they're run as a business but when you're talking about a national mm. team having to sell itself having to play a certain way to get people interested in it that's that's a pressure that I I don't know there are too many teams in world sports actually operate under mm. well I would just think that winning is entertaining exactly yeah so I I actually thought that they might have opted for Jake White because he's got a track record of turning teams around quickly and has a winning record. He did it with South Africa. He did it with the Brumbies in Australia as well. But um, and I think, am I right in saying over here when Checker came into Leinster, it wasn't immediate success. It kind of yeah, took, it took a, a few while years to, to build. Fully develop. Now, he had a good team to build on. It wasn't as mm. though the, the talent wasn't there, but he did take a couple of years for everything to really bed down. Yeah, and, and I mean, that could be the case with the Wallabies as well because... I mean, five days before he got on the plane to fly to Europe, he'd never even met some of these players that he's working with now. He'd never even spoken to them. And, and now we're asking him to turn it all around in 10 tests before the World Cup, which is quite a big ask. That's something that Matt Williams, who we were speaking to at the show on Monday, raised. He said that uh, he's got a huge respect for Czech as a coach, mm-hmm. but he said that he shouldn't actually be coaching the team yet. It should, he feels it should still be McKenzie, that there was essentially that there was a, a massive mistake made there around that whole controversy. It should be McKenzie there for the through this World Cup and through another cycle, yep. and then Cheka becomes this amazing club coach and then takes takes over. So uh, long term, is there is there still a negative effect of the sort of controversy of this year on Australian rugby? Um, at the moment, I don't think so. No. But if they lose to Ireland and then they lose to England next week and they go back home off the back of three Test losses and and you've only got a short time before the World Cup then that's what it'll be. But Ewan McKenzie and the whole Kirtley Beale uh, controversy was not handled well by anyone, not by the players, not by the coaches, and not by the ARU hierarchy at all. It was They made an absolute mistake with the way they did that, which led to Ewan McKenzie then quitting because he realised he'd lost the players. So if Ewan McKenzie was still here right now, I think it probably would have been a detriment to Australian rugby. Just because... A distraction, a bad, yeah, a bad I, feel yeah, around the place. The feeling was that there was no way back. That right. he, The players 
didn't support the way he was doing things and that there was kind of no way back from that. Ewan McKenzie was a, a good coach. He won a Super Rugby title as well, um, but it just didn't transfer over to the Wallabies. And, and what will be interesting to see whether that happens with Checker as well, whether he can do it. But he seems to be making good progress in every team that he's he's had, bar Stade Francais, who I, I don't think had the best time under him. But, yeah, um, yeah it's going to be interesting. Curtly Beale is back. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's on the bench for this one, so we'll probably see him at some stage. What has the reaction been like there? Are the Australian public forgiving of a guy who's caused them quite a few issues? Oh, I know we were talking about this before, but um, it's quite interesting. It's, it's really split Australia. Really? Massively, with the rugby public like um on our website you can kind of um email journalists if you're reading the story and things like that and the amount of emails i get of people just saying that i like i actually haven't had any supporting curtly bill but those people don't tend to send them in but it's the ones that say this is the wrong decision that it sends the wrong message but what michael checker has said all along is that he knows this will divide australia he said to himself that this is going to divide opinion but the ARU didn't suspend Kirtley Beale. He's available selection, and Michael Checker deemed him in the best 30 players in Australia. Well, what was he found to have done wrong specifically then, Beale? So he sent a lewd text message to the former team business manager, a, a picture of a, an obese woman, um, inadvertently sent it to her. He was found guilty of sending one text message, but found not guilty of sending a second more offensive text message. Um, the interesting part comes where the ARU... Chief Executive Bill Pulver and the Chairman Michael Hawker recommended to the Code of Conduct hearing that Kirtley Beale be sacked, that his contract be terminated. But now the the Code of Conduct found him guilty, but only fi- fined him forty five thousand Australian dollars. So it's about thirty thousand euro. Yeah, I'm not or even sure of the, the exchange yeah, rate at the moment. Something something about that. So they didn't. So it's kind of this interesting dynamic at the moment where. Michael Checker really rates Kirtley Beale. He's worked with him at the Waratahs. Bill Pulver and, and the chairman want him sacked. And now he's trying to also negotiate a new contract to stay in Australian rugby. So there's so many things going on and the Australian public's kind of thinking, <laughs> yeah. what, what the hell's happening with this guy? Yeah, and it's, it's so strange that a, a country with a playing pool as small as Australia, mm. as small as, you know, as Ireland, really, that would be about the size yep. of it, keep losing players like this. You know, James O'Connor has in yep. the past left as well. I mean, it's... You know, it seems strange that a country can keep doing this and keep losing players of this quality. Yeah, I was actually thinking about this only the other day because I, I ran into Matt Guido, um at the airport in Paris and just chained to him because he's obviously a former camera guy. Um, and it's it's quite bizarre how we keep lo- Like everyone talks about the players we lose, but um, I think Ireland jumped over Australia to number three this week, but we're still like number four in the world. And, you know, it wouldn't be a huge shock if we did win a World yeah. Cup. Um, but it's it's kind of an interesting dynamic where the rules that the Australian Rugby Union has are making Australian players more attractive to overseas teams. Like if you play for for Ireland or if you play for France or if you play for England, you get released to go back to your country in that international period. But Australian players, when they're recruited, the clubs know that they can't leave. They're playing every game yeah, in the league. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, they don't have to be released for anything. There's no other risks or anything like that. So they're actually becoming more attractive. Clubs are going, well, if we've got to choose between these guys, we know we're going to get more out of an Australian. So, But you're right, there's... I, I, in Australia, we have a habit of being able to turn over players and, and the next bloke comes through, basically. I mean, 
if Kurtley Beal was ruled out now, yeah, it'd be a big blow. But there's guys like Matt Tamua, Christian Lilifano, Israel Folau still there. James O'Connor's coming back to Australian rugby next year. So it's just a bizarre cycle in Australia. <laughs> it, it happens in all sports back there. Tamua is one of the guys who's coming into the team for this mm. match. Sam Carter, Luke uh, Luke Jones. Mm-hmm. These are three of the four changes. And Henry Spate makes his debut. It's funny, we'd be more familiar with some of the guys on the bench. Genya's on the bench. Yeah. Ray Cooper, Kurtley Beale, Will Skelton, James Horwell. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's certainly strength and depth. But does this, is, it, is this a slightly weakened team for this match? Uh, I don't know if it's weakened. Guys like Genya and, and Quade Cooper, who are no doubt world-class at their peak. But... Both of them had quite big injuries this year. I think Quade Cooper was out of action for four months and he might have only played, I don't know, two and a half, three games in the past um, four months. Will Genya had similar injuries and has only played a handful of games. So I think they'll get their chance. I I think Quade Cooper was actually quite good when he came on against France last week. And um, talking to he and Genya last week, last week was the first time in 11 years of playing together that they've been on the bench at the same time. (laughs) So while they were sitting there watching the Wallabies play France, they were kind of sitting there saying to each other, all right, when we go on, we've seen this, let's do this. So, you know, it can actually work as a a benefit bringing on a combination like that after 60 minutes or something like that and see how they go. But one guy to watch out Mm. for is Henry Spate. He's he's an awesome player. Well, we just need to make sure that Kenny and Craig Cooper aren't allowed to sit beside (laughs) each other. That's the (laughs) job number one for the Aviva stewards. What about the Aussie view on Ireland and the coach, Joe Schmidt? I mean, we... Mm. We're banging on a lot about Joe Schmidt at the moment, and maybe even too much. It's as though it's just only the coach out there rather than the players. Has he made any impact at all in terms of how Australians view Ireland? Well, I think so, because he's obviously the guy who came into Leinster after Checker as well, isn't he? Yeah. So he's got a, a track record of success, and, and people are a bit wary of Ireland now because Joe Schmidt's in there. Like They know that they're not going to be pushovers. They're, they're going to fight right till the end. And um, I think we've seen that in a couple of tests and what they did to the Springboks are, couple of weeks ago, like I think everyone sat up and went, wow, this team is actually a, the real deal. They're not just mucking around. So I personally, I think um, back in Australia, the view of Ireland is that they're the Smokies for, for next year's World Cup. Like everyone's talking. You have to explain what Smokies means. Uh, so, uh, it's uh, good though, right? <laughs> it's good. It, it is good. It, it means they're the underdogs, yeah, the, yeah. the guys the, who... The dark horse. Yeah, kind of thing. people who probably aren't talking about them as much as they are about England, obviously New Zealand, South Africa and Australia. Um, Wales are coming in there a little bit, but Ireland's kind of this team that's just sitting there, kind of ready to pounce. That that no one, well, I'm not sure what the expectation here is, but no one outside in Australia is expecting them to do too much. But everyone knows they could just go bang and, and get. Yeah, well, them. the expectation before South Africa was nothing. Now that we've beaten South Africa, it's, we're going <laughs> yeah, to win we're the World Cup. But if we lose on Saturday, it'll be back down to nothing. What, what's so, your prediction, so Chris? Do you think Australia will leave Dublin with a with a win? Oh, it's a tough one. I, I think the Wallabies have to win. To be honest, I, I'm not sure whether Ireland have to win but I know they want to get revenge for that game last year where Australia kind of got on them and everyone talks about the controversy but it was only last year where the Dublin Six wasn't it where those guys went out and got suspended before the game yep. against Ireland so I think with Curtly Beal coming back in a few changes I think um, the Wallabies can get this one maybe by let's say seven Wallabies by seven okay but you're not playing to the gallery here anyway Chris <laughs> that'll do Chris Dutton Canberra Times thanks so much enjoy the game no worries thank you You can see the level of expectancy. Coach, this is the game you wanted a victory, boy. It didn't happen. What happened? Oh, that makes such an idiot. A game that they've been looking forward to for a long time. Where do you where do you think you got it all wrong today? And then Pepe just ruins it for everyone. 
Thanks a lot, Pepe. You can see the level of expectancy. <laughs> He was fucking dreadful. Sorry, yeah. we're not we're out of here. Oh, we're not we? We are. Oh. Well, I apologize for that, but obviously, <laughs> it didn't exactly to win. All right. I just can't shake the image of Michael Checker. I mean, what, a, what age is Michael Checker? 47. 47 years of age. Hmm. And looking well for he's he's uh, he's, he's fit a guy, fit guy, big shoulder man. He's a, a, by all accounts, as we were saying, there was quite a tough operator uh, in his day. But you know, to be involved in live scrum sessions, live training sessions with the current hmm. Australian team. And on the other uh, hand, you know, it's number eight. They're, they're not even pushing in most of those scrums anyway. Let's, let's be quite frank. If you talk to any front rower, they'll immediately say, oh, yeah, the, the, yeah the, thanks for all your support, back rowers. Mm. They're basically just hanging there waiting to tackle the scrum half. Yeah, so. but he's, yeah, I, I, the, judging just reading between the lines, it seems like it was a pretty live session and he was involved in, in more than mm. just that. So I am picturing him taking down James Horwell and these kind of guys. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it is still pretty impressive. You know, but pretty again, no, no, pretty um, reckless for his own physical safety. Yeah, yeah, I would say you just yeah, want to no, make sure you're not reckless for the safety of his players. Yeah. What if he injured? Yeah, he just injures. It's happened before. Again, yeah, or somebody. I mean, well, well, what's happened before? Well, Owen uh, Henningberg. Uh, <laughs> Henning, this is your favorite book. Henningberg. This book uh, was once a player at Blackburn. I was with his Mr. Graham Sooness oh, as yeah. manager, and. And uh, there was an incident, uh, not with Henningberg, but with Dwight York, who was also then a player with Blackburn Rovers. Um, Graham Soonis and Dwight York, this is, I quote, ended up in an argument about an episode of the pitch. Soonis threw off his tracksuit top and insisted he would join in and play. He sometimes did, more than 50 years old. The players didn't have the courage to question it. They kicked off, and the first thing Soonis did was to chase Dwight York. The manager threw himself at his own player, studs first, kicked him at knee-height with both feet, and left Dwight York lying in the grass in front of his speechless teammates with a huge tear on one of his legs. York was carried off. Soonis didn't comment on the tackle at all. He just insisted the game should carry on. Graham Soonis and Dwight York haven't spoken to each other since the episode. York has hardly played. Uh, Soonis wow. left him out of the training camp and told the press that York, who in 1999 won the trouble with Man United and was considered one of the best forwards in Europe, would live to regret his unprofessional attitude when he got older. He's wasting his talent, Soonis said. Wow. <laughs> so That kind of thing happens from time to time. And sometimes it's even more subtle and psychological than that, such as the famous Glenn Hoddle episode when he told David Beckham that he was unable to kick a ball properly. You he are good him enough to do this yeah. skill. Uh, Murph, the Irish team is in as yeah. of this afternoon. Uh, a long What's the big night. news? Ro- uh, Robbie Henshaw plays at number 13. Okay. Uh, so the full team anyway is Rob Kearney at fullback, Tommy Bull, Henshaw at 13, Darcy inside him at 12, uh, Simon Zeeble, halfback pairing of Connor Murray and Johnny Sexton, and then it's Jamie Heaslip, Reese Ruddock, Peter Romani, uh, second rows are Paul O'Connell, Devin Toner, and a front row then of Jack McGrath, Rory Best, and Mike Ross. And I might as well go through the replacements as well. Why not? Sean Cronin, Dave Kilcoyne, Rodney Ayew, Dave Foley, Tommy O'Donnell, Owen Redden, Ian Madigan and Felix Jones. All right. Well, certainly the Aussie bench has a lot more uh, international experience, experience there. I, but I can say that. We've got experience. Joe Schmidt. So uh, Dave Foley, friend of the show, of course, Murph. We had him on there quite recently. Yeah, a friend of the show. Uh, any, other, any other super friends of the show? There? No, that's it, actually. Just, <laughs> just Dave just, Foley. Just Dave Foley. <laughs> um, but who we're glad to have. If you are listening, Dave, getting pumped up for your game this weekend. Now the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast will be out later on today, won't it, Ken? That's... Yeah... <laughs> They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. 
I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here? You're showing me, man. Well, I'm gonna, we, were at, we were at Celtic Park last uh, week, but England then were the team that followed us there. The England fans arrived up at Celtic Park and accompanied by the England band uh, sang a lusty chorus of uh, about the IRA. For uh, much of the first half, until the FA uh, frantically contacted members of the band and said, would you please stop playing along? <laughs> please stop playing along to this chant! Uh, so what was the thinking here? They're, they're, in South, uh, they're in Celtic Park? What was the thinking here? <laughs> hmm. I don't know. Well, they're playing against Scotland. What was so the... why are they singing anti-IRA chants? Well, look, why did Johnny Adair get a Mickey Mouse tattoo? The answer is nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just one of those, just one of those things. That is true. Uh, so we'll talk. We'll talk a bit about that later on, and we'll talk also. We look forward to the weekend where there's quite a big game between Manchester United and Arsenal. Mm. Time was on when this was the biggest of the lot. Uh, now it's only one of the bigger games. An attempt at satirical comedy by the venerable American sports writer Dan Jenkins hasn't gone down well with the target of the piece, Tiger Woods. If you've just jumped into the podcast at this point, a very brief recap, Jenkins creates fake interview with Tiger Woods in which Jenkins takes Woods apart with a bunch of cutting jibes. Dave Hannigan joins us to talk about this. Dave, Tiger's written a scathing article in reply to the journalist, to Jenkins. He's also written to the magazine, Golf Digest, to demand an explanation. Has he got a point? I don't think so. I think Dan Jenkins is renowned for attempting satire. I don't think this is his best example of satirical work, but it's very obvious that this is a fake interview. It's very obvious that he's poking fun and Tiger has revealed himself yet again to be humorless and unable to take a joke. And I think in terms of the general public is coming off much the worst in the whole thing. Really, though, because it's a fake interview, sure, but uh, certainly from Tiger's point of view, it's got real allegations in it. I mean, as he says uh, that Jenkins puts word, this is in the letter that they sent to Golf Digest, Tiger and his people, Jenkins puts word in our client's mouth saying variously that he has contempt for tipping, enjoys firing employees, is unable to make business decisions, isn't smart, disregards his friends and is personally dishonest. Uh, is it not the case that those are actually real, um, real sort of allegations, even though they're couched in, a, in this uh, parody type uh, interview? Well, my problem with it is when I first read the Tiger response, I thought that Dan Jenkins had actually faked an interview, had pretended to sit down with Tiger Woods and fabricated this interview. And then when I read the interview itself, I'm like, oh, this is you know a parody, a satire. Everything he says about Tiger is stuff that has been said about Tiger over the years in the locker rooms at tour events and whispered by journalists and sometimes mentioned by journalists in profiles of Tiger that he's a bad tipper. He's not a particularly nice person. He's not a very popular person. He tends to go through people quickly and disregard them when he's done. All of that stuff has been said before about Tiger, maybe seeing it, you know, all Put together in one place, maybe is is very is undoubtedly hurtful to Tiger. But you know, I didn't read anything in there that I hadn't read before somewhere else, and that didn't ring true in terms of what Tiger is really like. Dave, I don't understand why Tiger Woods shouldn't have a go back at Dan Jenkins. This is a terrible article. It's it fails as humor. All it does is is say a lot of uh, kind of mean jibes about Tiger. As you said, it's all stuff that's been said before. So why is Dan Jenkins even even writing this boring piece? Dan Jenkins is an 84-year-old man who was once regarded 
as the doyen of golf writing in America, the go-to guy for golf writing in America, has a grudge against Tiger unquestionably because earlier in Tiger's career, he requested an interview and it was almost a rite of passage when you were an up-and-coming golfer that you sat down with Dan Jenkins. He didn't. And therefore, you know, there has this been bad blood between them ever since. So because Tiger Woods didn't bend the knee to Dan Jenkins, he, he now has to put up with an 84-year-old man who should know a lot better uh, putting out just nasty stuff about him and he's just expected to laugh it off. Well, I think Dan Jenkins has written this kind of thing a hundred times before about, you know, 99 other golfers and they all accepted it, uh, but Tiger didn't. But here's the problem with that, Ken, is the magazine is Golf Digest. I was offered Golf Digest, a subscription to Golf Digest recently, 12 issues for $5 a year. It is a monthly golf magazine that I would imagine, like every other magazine, is struggling badly. Because, because it's just full of articles like this one by Dan Jenkins. Well, it's more full well, of instructional great. stuff. But here's, it's, it's been left behind by the instant media climate. But here's what I'm, I'm saying, how Tiger Woods was so stupid and how Tiger Woods handlers are so stupid is they have made this a massive story in America and Golf Digest, which comes out every month and disappears without a trace. This article was three pages from the back written by Dan Jenkins, who's beloved by old men in golf clubs, but young people don't even know who he is. Don't remember his heyday with Sports Illustrated. Don't remember the great novels that he wrote about football over here. Any of that. Suddenly Dan Jenkins is a, is a media story. He's on radio. They're talking about him on Sports Talk Radio, on ESPN, and Golf Digest. If we're talking clickbait, to use that terrible phrase, Golf Digest is suddenly relevant. So, you know, just from that point of view, Tiger Woods, by, by reacting to this and not ignoring it, turned it into the big, one of the biggest sports stories in America this week and made Golf Digest relevant again, when it hasn't been for a long, long time. Yeah, and Dan yeah. Jenkins maybe has got his wish there to a certain extent where he manages to get something interesting out of Tiger Woods. I mean, Tiger uh, says himself in the in the piece, uh, I've played for twenty, played on the PGA Tour for 20 years, I've given lots of interviews to journalists and all that time, more than I could count, and some have been good and some not so much. The thing there is that, yeah, the good ones were at the start of his career and there hasn't been a good one for many, many years because he's de- deliberately shut himself down. What I kind of like about this story, uh, or this, you know, the, the fact that we're talking about it is Tiger in his response, Dave, has maybe show, shown his human side for the first time in a while. I suppose so. I, I think, you know, I think you've hit on it there. It's He's controlled the narrative, apart from the time when his, you know, private life came tumbling down around him. He's controlled the narrative about how the public perceives him. He gave an interview to Charles Pierce very early in his career for X. Ex- Esquire magazine and Charles Pierce, one of the foremost magazine writers in this country. And Pierce wrote a lot of stuff that was off the record and gave a very rounded, full, colorful view of Tiger, which obviously the Woods camp went ballistic about that. John Feinstein was another guy who wrote about Tiger's bad behavior and bad manners early on in his career, which cost him a lot, I think, in terms of access. And since then, everybody's tiptoed around Tiger. To be at a golf tournament in America when Tiger is playing is to witness the media at their most psycho. So while I agree with Ben's point that Dan Jenkins' article is, you know, this outmoded kind of old time laughy attempt at a laugher kind of thing. You know, I agree with that. I also love the fact that anybody puts fun at Tiger because people generate around him in the American media and continue to do so even in the wake of the fact that he was exposed for being perhaps one of the greatest frauds uh, in terms of what he told us he was and what he actually was in any sport. Do you think so, Dave? Because, I mean, 
It seems to me that ever since that happened, the entire US media has just turned against Tiger Woods. I mean, I, I can't remember the last time I read anything even fair about him, never mind positive. Um, it, it, it have, just, you ever interviewed, have you ever seen him interviewed by an American golf reporter on, on, the on TV? TV is a, a bit different, though. I'm talking about what, what, people, uh, what people write. I mean, on television, obviously, they did kind of suck up to Tiger Woods because he's, he's clearly one of the biggest stars in the, in the sport. I mean, he's, he's one of the reasons people are, are watching. But, you know, it seems to me, I mean, it's when you compare the, the attitude to Woods from before uh, the sort of collapse of his, of his private life and public image um, uh, and after. I mean, on, uh, before, before that happened, there was this unanimous sort of everyone is out cheerleading for Tiger. And then as soon as that happened, they all flip and they're all against them. I mean, it's, there's something slightly repulsive about it. I, I don't agree. I, I feel that Woods had, had basically, you know, had sold himself to be something that he was this incredibly nice guy who smiled for the camera when, you know, all the all the people who were ever around him spoke differently. He jettisoned people left and right. But my point about Jenkins is, you know, you, you know, Jenkins is an old school guy who grew up with Hogan and Nicholas and covered Nicholas and Palmer and is a throwback. And, you know, I don't think it would have it would have done Tiger Woods any harm to throw the old man a bone earlier in his career. And now when everybody's forgotten who Dan Jenkins is, Tiger has has committed the PR cardinal sin of suddenly everybody wants to know who Dan Jenkins is. And, you know, people in their 20s who've never heard, who may have heard of his daughter, Sally, but who've never heard of him. But, are, but again, Dave, you know, I mean, the, what you're what you're effectively saying here is that. If only Tiger Woods had paid tribute, as was appropriate, to Dan Jenkins at an early point in his career, Dan Jenkins would have been giving him an easy ride uh, ever since on the basis that uh, Tiger, Tiger gave him an interview and, and that would have meant... So, so in effect, what Dan, what Dan Jenkins says about Tiger Woods um, doesn't, has nothing to do with what Tiger Woods actually is or what he does. It merely has to do with how nicely Tiger Woods has treated Dan Jenkins in the past. That's not, that doesn't sound very no, principled. I think, I think the... I think the problem here is that Tiger Woods is is showing himself to be human, as as uh, was just pointed out there. He's showing himself to be human and perhaps more fragile than we thought because he has responded to this. And I think he's responded because he can see now after 20 years on the tour, that's that's how his fellow pros talk about him. That's what they tell journalists about him. That And that must hurt to see that in print laid out in this ungainly and awkward uh, form of a column by Jenkins. But the other thing to, to, you know, to somebody mentioned earlier there is that I think the, the fact that he's responded does, you know, this may be the most interesting Tiger Woods has ever said. <laughs> no, absolutely agree. And just lastly on that one, he said he responded via this Players' Tribune, the playerstribune.com. This is something that uh, we've talked about. In the, it looks a bit ominous for, uh, for journalists everywhere. Dave, this is a, a sp- run by a sportsman, Derek Jeter. I think uh, Blake Griffin is involved there, big basketball basketballer over there. Uh, and essentially it's a forum for sports people to get their unvarnished views across. Um, is this making a bit of an impact? Because it's, a, it's, a, it's had a couple of nice pieces. Yeah, it's starting to, you know, starting to cause a few ripples. I mean, the the irony here, of course, is Derek Jeter, uh, the New York Yankees shortstop, recently retired. He, you know, has been the antithesis of Tiger Woods for his entire career in that he stayed single, living in New York, womanized for 20 years and was never, you know, was celebrated because he never married, never pretended to be anything he wasn't and was basically this Teflon player that nothing ever stuck to. And, you know, when he retired, you know, the whole the whole of America, basically, uh, 
was sorry to see him go. He's the absolute opposite of Tiger Woods. But Woods and Jeter are reportedly friends. They're both Nike people. And, you know, it's not surprising that he would use this. And I think more and more of them, I think Twitter has come into play with this as well. Obviously, it has taken away, you know, the need to interact with journalists and stuff. But the Players' Tribune will, I think, now turn into the go-to place when you want to respond to something or whether you want to call out people who have criticised you or whatever. Yeah. Dave, we'll leave it there. Brilliant stuff. Thanks a million. Thanks a lot, guys. What I find remarkable about Tiger, Tiger's reply is that he... There's a lot of stuff in there, as he says, uh, and as we had on at the start of the show, he's, he's being essentially called stupid, he's been called vacuous, but those words being used, that this is what the yeah, He's a moron, he doesn't know who, he, he's so thick that he doesn't know who Gandhi and is. And yet he seems as annoyed, if not more annoyed, uh, by being called somebody who stiffs on tips. Mm. He doesn't well, tip yeah. properly. Well, I mean, that's, that's pretty bad, isn't it, Getting, being called mean? But it's the biggest thing in America. It's incredible. Remember uh, when when, uh, Pete, when Andre Agassi really wanted to get at Pete Sampras when they were playing that exhibition game? Yeah. They started having a little bit of a, an argument with each other. And then Andre takes out his pockets out of his uh, little tennis shorts, just pulls them out, empties them. Yeah. Like, oh, sorry, I haven't got any money to tip you. Yeah. <laughs> that was very funny. <laughs> so the way to get at these guys, the biggest sportsmen in the world, certainly in America, yeah. is to imply. If an Irish sportsman is not seen as a big tipper, I don't think anyone would Oh, well, hang on a second. What about Brian O'Driscoll? What about the kids spreading rumors that he didn't give sweets out at Halloween? <laughs> oh, yeah. That wrecked his head. <laughs> yeah. That's probably. Was really annoyed about Brian O'Driscoll's that. autobiography. That's probably the, the juiciest thing. part of the book. He seems more annoyed about that than he was about yeah. the spear tackle. You know this this kid going around saying, this kid going around saying, oh, Driscoll, he, didn't give he doesn't answer year. his door. He doesn't. He's in there. I know he's in there, but he doesn't answer his door and give out sweets. And he said, no, I give out lots of sweets. Beckham as well, the same thing. Old alligator arms, Beckham. Little alligator arms couldn't reach down to his pocket with his big gold wallet in there and buy dinner for his teammates around twenty six thousand dollars a year. Teammates. Yeah, I mean, but you know, no one likes being called mean. But oh, that's another one of the things that's that's thrown a tiger in there. I mean, it's just it's just an appalling piece of work. You mentioned the piece earlier on. What was the name of the woman who wrote that? A Diane Keisha. Yeah, Diane. Keisha. Now that was a brilliant piece, right? But you can imagine the guy, the other, the other guy in that, um, the guy who in the fake, uh, the, the fake interview, whatever, rings her up demanding that she interview him, right? Mm-hmm. You can imagine him reading that and laughing, thinking <laughs> yeah. this is actually, this is very good. But, you know, I can totally, I mean, Tiger Woods, he's reading this, what am I supposed to think? So this guy's just putting out there that I'm, you know, a mean, um, ignorant, yeah. uh, you know, empty, uh, moronic guy who, who oh, isn't even, who, no, by I the think- way, isn't even that good at golf. Not even that good. At I all. think people are aware of our feelings on at this stage, and aware of Dave Hannigan's opposing feelings. Judge for yourself. We'll tweet on the links uh, to the, the couple of relevant pieces there. Uh, another point brought up by Jenkins though was Tiger's use of nicknames. Uh, Stevie. Oh Kirby, yeah, he Chucky, gives people kind of thing. nicknames. Yeah, Jesus. but no, I'm only using that Ken to remind me of uh, you unearthing my new favourite sporting nickname on TV last night for Big Anthony Towell, the Swatra Juggernaut. Swatra being his home village. Uh, Juggernaut being well. This is what I like. See, I love big people nicknames. Yeah. Uh, Toa's a big man, a very big man. Uh, Well-built, strong, uh, physically, mentally. He's the kind of guy you just need to give, you need to name him after a juggernaut. I mean, there's not, there, uh, no other word would have fitted there. Clonus Colossus would yeah. be another example. Big uh, Kevin McBride, of course. Yeah, there's, um, well, I mean, I don't need to tell you about, about Paddy McCormick, obviously. What? No, but just remind our, our, our listeners there, if you will. Paddy McCormick, the Iron Man of Road. I mean, everyone knows about Paddy McCormick. Mm. Uh, awfully midfielder. The Iron Man of Road? From, uh, the yeah. Colossus of Road, surely. No, no, they I went... I mean, come on. They, they went with the Iron Man If the Man guy's from Road. Road and he's a big lad, he's got to be the Colossus of Road. Yeah. See, he wasn't really that much of a Colossus. He was more 
of an Iron Man. <laughs> you see, Ken. Okay. But I, mean, I think if if your deeds on the pitch are colossal, they could one hundred percent have gone for the Colossus of Rhodes. Alan, Alan, Alan Kernan, of course, the Wicker Man. The Wicker Man, wasn't it? Well, I'm not, how positive is that? Though? <laughs> I don't know if it's that positive. You know, Wicker isn't the most movable uh, thing I've ever heard. But you can see the difference if it's a smaller man, such as Barry McGuigan. You've yeah. got to, or Alex Higgins. You've got to name them after a force of nature: the Clonus Cyclone, the Big Bang, uh, Willie Casey, the, the Hurricane. Yeah. Well, so we're just naming nicknames now. I mean, this, well, yeah. a Big Bang is a force of nature. The Big Bang was the <laughs> biggest force of nature. He wasn't until he met a Guillaume uh, Rigondeau. Okay, that's fine. There's no okay. need to go mentioning Rigondeau here. <laughs> I'm always bringing up that fight. Katie Taylor, speaking of the boxing, he's going well at the World Championships in South Korea. Next up is Sofia Ochigava after Katie came through. A bit of a battle this morning against Mira Potkinen. Darren O'Neill is in Jeju in South Korea. Darren, it seems like she had a bit of a tear-up today. Yeah, that's definitely the case. Um, I suppose Katie boxed very, very well in the first round. She used she was using her footwork very well. But uh, as soon as that second round, second round started and the bell went, the Finnish opponent came tearing across the ring and went straight bullishly into, into Katie. So she was looking for a bit of a brawl and a bit of a, a war. And uh, I suppose she, she got what she looked for to a degree because, uh, as we know, Katie loves a bit of a tear-up. And, and while she said using her boxing skills, she, she also showed that she can stand in close and fight. It's nice to see an opponent come out like that, Darren. I see, you see Katie afterwards was saying, well, you know, maybe I should have boxed a little bit more at the start of that second round. But we see some fighters being quite cagey against Katie Taylor. So it's nice to see somebody having a go. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, sometimes when opponents are boxing, someone's of Katie's caliber, of their, of their uh, I suppose, reputation, they, it can be quite daunting. And sometimes they just get in to try to survive the fight. But uh, the Finnish opponent had, had a good go. She went from, I suppose, as soon as she, she realized that she had probably lost the first round, um, she had she had a, a very good go in the second round and put Katie under a lot of pressure. But uh, Katie stood and showed her what she's made of, and uh, it was a very entertaining fight. You know, are are we looking at a different type of fight now in the quarterfinal? It's Katie's old friend Sophia Archigave. Yeah, definitely, definitely going to be a different fight. Um, you know, I think Katie didn't have to go looking for that finish card today. She she was definitely there and definitely coming towards her. Um, so it allowed Katie to counter her quite a bit. But Archigave is is an out of counter puncher, an out and out southpaw, and. Uh, it's going to be very difficult. Now, Ochagava herself has, has had a tough fight today. She was in against a Brazilian girl who was, who was very tough and, uh, and put quite a lot of pressure on, on uh, Ochagava, who, who in turn, I suppose, tired a bit. But, uh, yeah, it's going to be a different fight because Katie's a boxer, she, you know, and she's going to try out-box Ochagava, and Ochagava's going to try, I suppose, uh, counter-punch Katie. But it's going to be interesting because I think a lot of it will come down to the first round, really. Um, computer scoring is gone now, so it's not about getting a one or two point lead and her running but but if Ochagava wins the first round then Katie I suppose will have to put a, a bit more pressure on and go looking for a little bit more but uh, it, it, it's going to be definitely an interesting fight because they have a long running history there and uh, Ochagava as we know said a few I suppose, uh, or made a few remarks after the Olympics and uh, it, I think Katie will be looking forward to getting back in and as she said herself she loves boxing the best in the world so she gets her chance tomorrow Yeah, Ochagava made a few remarks uh, along the lines of that Katie is kind of winning in reputation here she's the golden girl of boxing and therefore that's how she got the decision in what was a very a very tight fight uh, if I remember correctly but we, even the body language after Ochagava looked very miserable on the podium there not exactly a, a gracious loser has that created bad blood? Is Katie capable of, of having bad blood? with another boxer? No, I don't think that's within Katie. I, I mean, look, anyone else probably would be, but as Katie said to me today, she just loves looking, loves getting in with the best in the world and, and proving herself against the best in the world. And, you know, that's exactly what that's got. She, she's one of the best female boxers in the weight division throughout the world. And uh, 
Katie will be definitely looking forward to getting in there, but I don't think Katie holds grudges or anything like that. She'll be getting in and just thinking about her own performance tomorrow and how she has to perform to, to show that she is again the best there. Uh, Darren, just lastly, the, Michaela Walsh was beaten, unfortunately, a split decision today. Uh, how is that next batch of boxers coming up, the other girls who are over there, um, in, in terms of the experience that they've gotten from this tournament? Yeah, I mean, look, Michaela's very disappointed and uh, I suppose she's, she's feeling a little bit sore today after getting, after getting uh, defeated. But it was a very close fight. She was in against a very good counter-puncher and it was, it was a hit-for-tat all the way through. I felt Michaela got the first round, um, but the, her opponent came out, I suppose, a little bit better school in the second round or a little bit, with a bit more of a better plan, I suppose, if you want to say it that way. Um, and it was, it was tight for the remaining rounds, but... Look, she's going to come on and leave some bounce for that. I mean, Michaela had a great year. I mean, she got to the Silver to Commonwealth, narrowly beaten by an Olympic champion, and now she'd have to get in the quarterfinals of the, world cha- or the last 16 of the World Championship. So, you know, it's a big year for her, and uh, it'll definitely bring her on, I think, anyway. Um, and I suppose the same for the other two girls as well. Claire Grace, you know, had, had got, to, got to the last 16, where she was a box, a Turk who she had beaten before, and had to rule herself out due to a cut, which is very unfortunate for her, because, you know, I, I think Claire had a great, great chance of taking a medal home from there. Um, I'm not sure who's on the other side. I know there's a Welsh girl on, on the other side of the draw. If she had beaten the Turk, and uh, you know, I didn't think Claire would have. I would have fancied Claire to take a medal, to be honest. But you know, that's unfortunate. And young Joanne Landem, who was in a, against a very talented Chinese girl, by all accounts. So you know, they all put in great, great uh, show of themselves. And you know, I think they can come home quite happy with themselves. And I suppose looking forward to the next majors, whatever they may be for them. Yeah, well, listen, we'll keep an eye on Katie tomorrow uh, against, uh, against Roger Gava. Darren, listen, thanks for talking to us. Thanks a million. No problem, Mom. Or just one more piece of news to bring you, and that is that... Uh, well, you, you break the news here, Murph. People might have heard it already, but I want you to talk about the news. Oh, well, nine All-Stars, nine Leicester titles, and nine All-Ireland titles. Tommy Walsh has decided at this stage to call it a day, which, in fairness, probably isn't a bad haul. Uh, the nine All-Stars are actually won consecutively, which is something that's just never been done before. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's extraordinary to your first year to win an All Star, and then for the eight consecutive years after that to continue winning All Stars. It's just uh, absolutely unprecedented. Uh, quite a few people have been having a word on Twitter. Henry Shefflin. Oh, Henry, uh, Henry does, was one of his occasional tweets. No, it, to be honest, we've gotten him onto this. Since we had him on the TV, he has, he, that's the moment that he decided to start tweeting because he got loads of praise on Twitter. So, I mean, I, I would probably get involved in a situation like that as well. But uh, Henry has tweeted. Tommy was and is an inspiration to all Kilkenny, Hurling and beyond. Small man, massive heart, hashtag legend, hashtag spirit, hashtag friend, and three hand clap emojis. So, mm-hmm. fair enough. But uh, there were two other people, one from Cork, one from Tipperary, who, uh, I mean, it's quite obvious the respect that there is for Tommy Walsh, but also a respect for the <clears throat> physicality that he brought <laughs> to the game. Uh, Gerbert O'Sullivan, The Rock from Cork. Has tweeted, so Tommy Timber has called it a day. Tommy a ch- Timber. A cheeky little <laughs> bastard, but boy could he hurl. Big loss to the game. Hashtag TW5. And uh, Podrick Maher from Tipperary has tweeted, Jesus, he was some yoke over the years. Congrats. Hashtag TW5. Some yoke. Some yoke. So, uh, what finer prize can you have? That's, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, I... I I mean, I retweeted that one. I, I thought that that summed it up pretty pretty nicely. I thought we might have to come up with a, a natural disaster-related nickname for Tommy, such as Tommy the Typhoon Welsh. No. But I think Tommy Timber is Tommy Timber is, Tommy Timber is pretty good. And, uh, you know, well, it goes without saying. Uh, people much more important and much more knowledgeable than I have said it, but he was probably the greatest defender the game of hurling has ever seen. So that's pretty impressive. Oh, another one in the eye for Jackie Tyrrell, I'm sorry. <laughs> Listen, 
Ask Jackie. Uh, JJ, Delaney. JJ Delaney's listening. Going, what? What? A, wait a second. No, I'm sorry. He was. All right. He was the best there ever was. Mervin, thanks very much, Ken. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you, Kenny. Thanks, thanks for you. listening. Have a listen to our website. Check. Uh, listen to our website. Well, there's stuff you can listen to on the website secondcaptains.com, and we'll bring you the football podcast later on today. Take care. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 